Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a very special Beauty Brains. Since it's Thanksgiving this week, Valerie and I decided to take a break and run a best-of show today. Instead of just rerunning a show, though, I thought it would be helpful to kind of pick a theme and then play answers to questions all related to that same theme. So, the theme on today's show is the cosmetic industry. We're answering questions about how things work in this cosmetic industry, including things about advertising, distribution, labeling, and much, much more. These were all questions sent in by listeners, and most of them are audio questions. If you want to submit an audio question, feel free to record it on your smartphone and then email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the show and have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. We'll be back next week answering all new questions. Enjoy. Well, let's get to some beauty questions. I think our first question is an audio question. All right, let me cue that up. This comes from Rachel. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Rachel from Hawaii. I love your show. Thank you so much for all the work you put into it so we can be more informed consumers. Anyways, my question is, what are your thoughts on microplastics in cosmetic formulations? The FDA website says that they are safe for human use, but what about the environment? So far, they've only banned them for rinse-off products, and I will admit the idea of eating plastic from my lipstick is a little bit concerning. But my gut says that the plastics are probably no more harmful to the environment than the plastics from the product's packaging. And thanks to your show, I know that if they were unsafe for humans, they wouldn't be in our products. So any thoughts on microplastics would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Wow, Rachel, great question. And I I think uh, there's some really important stuff we need to probably talk about before we answer the exact question that you have. Yeah, I'll say up front, before getting into microplastics, um, my general thought is that the cosmetic industry as a whole is unfairly maligned when it comes to Mm -hmm. the impact on the environment. I mean, for, for example, an article published in Nature suggested that Personal care products contribute 4% of VOC pollution, and yet there's so much more regulations about uh, VOC uh, uh, regulations for cosmetics than they are for, say, like industry or car emissions. And there's also movements to restrict the use of certain sunscreen ingredients that might have an impact on coral reefs, when the reality is the major contributor to the damage of coral reefs uh, is the acidification of the oceans. It's it's not sunscreens. So people are always, whenever there's some environmental issue, one of the first places they go is the cosmetic industry. I think it might be because the cosmetic industry is looked at as kind of this frivolous thing, right? It's a, it's a, a product that you don't really need, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think it's kind of, let me just say it's unfair. Well, if you said you're driving your car is causing environmental concern, you would be like, yeah, duh. Of course I know that. If somebody said to you, did you know your face wash is causing environmental damage? It's a little bit like, what? I never thought about that. So I think part of it has to do with a little sensationalism and the 
something that people use every day. Everyone uses cosmetics every day or personal care products, whether it's toothpaste or lipstick. And so to say that that's causing some harm, you would think, oh, well, if it's, you know, if it's something I'm using and I'm putting it on me, it's bad for the environment. What? I think that causes more of a headline than, um, you know, saying steel, steel factories cause environmental pollution. You know, it's kind of, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, it's just how, how it attracts the news. It, it does make for better headlines, I say. Now, so as far as microplastics go, um, in 2015, the U.S. passed a law banning microplastic beads in cosmetics. And in that law, they defined the term plastic microbead as any solid plastic particle that is less than five millimeters in size and is intended to be used to exfoliate or cleanse human, the human body or any part thereof. So this primarily refers to polyethylene beads. And as far as safety goes, uh, the CIR determined that the use of polyethylene in cosmetics is safe for use at the levels that we typically use. So as far as safety goes, you don't really have to worry about uh, the kind of harm in using products with microbeads in them. But as far as the environment goes, you know, microplastics are generated from all kinds of products. The major contributors are car tires, uh, clothing fibers, oh, outdoor yeah. paint, mm -hmm. and then plastic pellets. And the plastic pellets, uh, some percentage of that is what's going to end up in your cosmetic products. Now, it, it's, it's important to note that more than half of the microplastic pollution comes from car tires, and we're not really doing anything about that. Again, the cosmetic industry gets singled out, mostly because I think cosmetics are just looked at as these frivolous things that people could do without. And you think about cars and clothes, you're like, eh, you know, we, we can't go without cars and clothes. Maybe we could go without uh, an exfoliation body wash. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I remember one time being at a scientific meeting for the cosmetic sciences, and this was when the microbeads was a huge uh, thing that we were talking about. And it was really, really in the headlines every day. This was about 2016. And it was picking apart some of the studies that have been done because at the time, people weren't talking about microplastics coming from their clothing or coming from car tires. And I think the gentleman who presented an analysis of these studies being done, Dr. Lockhead uh, is a scientist in the cosmetics industry, a polymer chemist, and he was looking at all the studies being done on microbeads. And he showed this reference about the shipping industry using cleansers to clean uh -huh. the ship decks and to clean the barnacles off of the ships. And those contain microplastics, yet nobody is looking at that industry for regulation in the microplastics that are being put directly in the ocean. So it's just interesting how people focus and create all this legislation. And in fact, people were talking about microbeads and cosmetics, and then there was this ripple effect of it being banned. But now that it's been banned, have we seen a reduction of plastics in the waterways? No, you have to look at everything as a whole. It's not just one industry. It's crazy. I, I would say, you know, it's a, it's a fair enough point that maybe microplastics don't need to be in cosmetics. And in my opinion, the little beads for exfoliating uh, or providing grit in toothpaste, they're not really going to have much functional impact beyond making consumers feel like they're working better. I, I'm unconvinced by evidence that a, uh, 
an exfoliator bead in a body wash actually has much impact. But I do want to add, uh, so so getting rid of those from body washes, I, I don't think that's that much of a big deal. But I do want to add that there are some environmental groups who mistakenly lump all polymers into the category of microplastics. They claim things like acrylic polymers, uh, carbomer, or styling resins like PVP are microplastics. These things are not microplastics. I mean, these are, when they break down their liquids, they're not solids. Uh, and there's no evidence that these things are building up in the environment and having a negative impact on wildlife or, or otherwise. Uh, you know, maybe they are, but I think there should really be more evidence than just the hypothesizing of these groups. Uh, there's a group called Plastic Soup, and they just are blanketly saying oh, consumers should just avoid things with carbomer, PVP, or other polymers in it. I think the cosmetics industry is such a small fraction of what's really happening and are we saying you don't look at cosmetics you know it's so small who cares and you know you can say well lots of things incrementally add up right no i i think we're saying we need to look at everything as a whole and not just target one area um i don't want people to think we're like oh we should put microplastics back or microbeads back in cosmetic products i don't want people to think we're saying that um but we're just saying the legislation didn't really help anything. I yeah, exactly. Now, uh, while banning the plastic microbeads, you know, I don't think they're going to really have much impact on the cosmetics that you use. Uh banning these cosmetic polymers would certainly radically change cosmetics for the worse. I mean, oh, yeah. hair styling products, conditioners, moisturizers, cleansers, makeup, I mean, all of these products that you know and love are formulated uh, with these kinds of polymers, and they'd have to be reformulated. And the reality is, reformulated products that don't use these ingredients, they just don't work as good. Um, mm-hmm. If these if these polymers are really having a negative impact on the environment, uh, then certainly something should be done. But before radically altering the cosmetics that you use every day and making them worse, I think we really need more better research in this area. Exactly. Before we jump the gun, for sure. Hi, Perry and Valerie. I just wanted to first off start um, by saying how much I love your program. I am just totally enamored by the chemistry behind our products, our cosmetic products. Um, I am a professional makeup artist. I have been in the industry for 15 years. And I am a 53-year young mom of four boys, and I am going to branch out, and I'm going back to college. So as I'm getting older, I'm thinking about what I want to do with my future, and when I'm 70 years old, I am not going to be the one people are going to be looking to for the newest and latest trends. So I've decided I am going to begin a college career I'm going to go back to school, get my aesthetics license, and then get my cosmetology instructor's license, then go get a Bachelor of Science, and move to Master's, and a PhD, so that when I'm 70 years old, I can be a professor at the university uh, in cosmetic science. That's my focus. So my question for you today is, which do you think would be a better minor for me as a future professor 
teaching up and coming cosmetic scientists, a business minor or a marketing minor. Thanks a bunch. Hugs to you both. And I can't wait to hear your answers. Cindy, thank you so much for the audio question. If you guys would like to ask an audio question, you certainly can. Just record something from your smartphone and send it to us in email, thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Thank you. 53 years young, and you want to eventually become a professor of cosmetic science. So I think really what your what your educational path is um it just depends on what you want your career to be so if you want to become a future professor usually professors at universities have to have a phd to teach as a full matriculated uh tenured professor some universities just require a masters degree of sorts to be you know a lecturer or teach a course And of course, other universities that have very specific degrees in cosmetic science, like the University of Toledo, they invite guest lecturers to fill in and teach on very specific topics. So for example, I am a guest lecturer at the University of Toledo for their hair color chemistry. Perry, you are also a lecturer at the University of Toledo. Yeah, I do a couple of remote lectures there a couple times a year, but yeah. And we we are not... uh, um, PhD level people, but we have industry experience. And in that program, that's, that's all you need. Exactly. So yeah, it really just depends on what you want to do. So if you want to be a professor, I think for sure you would need at least a master's in the subject matter at hand to teach any course at major or a majority of universities. Uh, And for sure, at the major, bigger universities, you likely need a PhD. I think it depends on the academic institution. Of course, I think it's very interesting that you're a makeup artist and you want to teach about cosmetic science. So I would think uh, mostly what are the aspects you want to teach to people? What do you enjoy about it? What are your interests in? You mentioned business and marketing. Are you interested in teaching people how to establish their own business or are you interested in understanding and learning the chemistry? I think for sure in order to teach, you have to have some experience working in the industry. So maybe that'll give you a stepping stone to figure out what aspect of the industry you would like to teach. It's, there really are tons of opportunities. Uh, There's, you know, working on the ingredient side, the raw material side, there's working on the brand side, which is more business oriented and less science focused. Uh, There's actually formulation work, there's regulatory work, there's so many things that you could do. And there are equally endless career opportunities to get there or education opportunities to follow the path to get to those career opportunities. Yeah, becoming a professor to teach about cosmetic science, that's a pretty niche thing. Um, and there aren't a, first, there aren't a lot of opportunities there. I mean, there aren't, a, there are more now, but there aren't a lot of colleges that specifically have a major for cosmetic science. So the best you're going to be able to do probably is you're going to have to get a degree in chemistry or in the pharmacy school. And, you know, that's going to take a, a, a long while. And if, if you already don't have a background in science, you're going to have to go back to college and, I don't know about you, Valerie, but uh, I I wouldn't want to take PCAM right now, <laughs> going through calculus and all of that stuff. 
I actually really liked physical chemistry. I got it. I got an A plus in it. I, I'm pretty Get amazed out of that I did, but <laughs> that's one of the few I, courses I got, I got an, an A. a in. Well, I got an A in the class, but I, I, I scored the highest uh, in the final exam, which was like 57%. <laughs> I was the best <laughs> of a terrible class. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I had a great time in that class. But anyway, yeah, it's anyone can do anything at any age. It just is the, the degree of difficulty that it is. So yeah. I would think, what do you want to get out of teaching, right? Being a professor is about teaching cosmetic science and specifically which aspect do you want to teach and who do you yeah. want to teach it to? Like, what are the goals of the people that you're teaching to? And I think that will help you define the career path uh, that you but, need to take because you might not even have to teach in a university or academic setting. There are lots of individual, I don't want to say lots of, but there's a few institutions that teach people how to formulate their own products or teach people how to start their own businesses within the beauty yeah. space that you could teach as well, that you don't necessarily need to go through academia to get, to get that. There are a lot of those, uh, some are better than others, but just remember anybody can make anything they want on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Perry, so. maybe you could email Cindy back and send her a couple links to those different yeah, courses. I, and yeah, that'd be great. I could certainly do that. Yeah. If you want to become a cosmetic chemist, uh, let me know. I'll, uh, I'll send you some links to uh, tell you how to do that. Yeah. Perry has some great, great literature on that that he's created. Hi there, um, my name's Claire and I'm from Melbourne in Australia. Um, I really want to grow my hair longer, but it's just taking forever. Um, it doesn't seem to grow as long as it used to when I was in my 20s and 30s. Um, I'm 42 now. Um, anyway, I keep seeing advertisements for Vita gummy type hair growth gummy things, um, like hair growth vitamins. Um, do they work or are they just a load of rubbish? Is it going to be my, um, magic bullet to get me long, glossy, glorious hair, or am I just wasting my money? I feel like I kind of know the answer, but I just want to know what you think. Bye. Well, Claire, I think we both kind of know the answer, don't we? Now, it's no secret here on the Beauty Brains or people who listen to the show, it's no secret that I'm not a huge fan of uh, supplements. I don't think uh, generally people who are perfectly healthy need to take any supplements unless they're prescribed by the doctor, uh, which is completely different than the advertising you see for these things on TV. But I looked into this Vita gummy hair growth products, and I'm not impressed. Now... I looked at the research of this whole idea of eating something to affect hair growth. Now, there are a number of compounds popularly believed to affect hair growth. These include protein, uh, vitamin C, biotin, vitamin B12, zinc, niacin, essential fatty acids, iron, copper, selenium, vitamin A, and vitamin D. Now, I mentioned these because these were the ones that were mentioned in a review paper of this exact question. Uh, the question of whether eating some specific supplement or nutrient is going to affect hair growth. Now, this paper 
uh, says, and I quote, There is no evidence that any of these will affect the hair growth of anyone who is not malnourished. So unless you have an eating disorder or you're starving, you are not going to see any benefit from using a supplement to grow your hair. Unfortunately, that's just reality. And the paper specifically calls out that biotin, which I know if you read on the internet, people love biotin and they take biotin and they want to make their hair and nails strong. Well, they specifically looked at biotin and they have not shown any increase in hair growth in people who are healthy. So the bottom line is that biotin and none of these other things and the supplement form is going to make your hair grow. And the Vita Gummy product actually claims to contain 16,000% the recommended daily level of biotin. Uh, so you're getting 16,000% more than you need just to be healthy. And none of that is going to help grow your hair any anymore. So <laughs> I'm sorry, Claire. Uh, no, uh, these supplements are not going to help you grow your hair. The best you can do is to eat a good diet, uh, fruits and vegetables, and shampoo and condition your hair uh, as needed. Uh, but there's not much you can do to make your hair grow faster. Here's another supplement question that comes to us from Danielle. I love the supplement questions. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Danielle from New York. I'm a longtime listener and a huge fan of your show. As a new physician and a beauty junkie, this could not be more perfect for me. My question is about the Halo Beauty supplements that are created by YouTube beauty influencer Tati Westbrook. She has claimed that her original hair, skin, and nails formula does everything from cure acne to heal eczema to make your hair and nails grow faster. She even claims it will stop your hair from going gray. She has some very impressive before and after pictures, but I just cannot believe that the changes in those pictures have anything to do with her product. Could you explain which ingredients she might be using to make these claims and whether it is possible that her formula is having so many effects? Well, I love this question and thank you so much for it, Danielle. Uh, I looked at these products. Let me just address the before and after pictures because on her website, they have a ton of before and after pictures. People, before and after pictures are never a good measure of whether a product works or not. Now, first, it's really easy to trick uh, a photo. You know, just use Photoshop. It's not that hard. And actually, if you look at the photos on that website, I'm, they, don't, they weren't even Photoshop. There is just a lighting difference there, and they show a before and after. And if you change the lighting just slightly you can make things look drastically different. In fact, when I was in the claims group at uh, the company I work for, uh, the claims group is the ones responsible for substantiating any of the kind of claims that I put out in a bottle. One of the most difficult things that I found in the claims department was doing these before and after pictures and tracking how uh, treatment might affect someone's uh, appearance. Because if Somebody move their, say you're taking a picture of somebody's crow's feet by their eye. If they just blink their eye a little bit or they move their head a little bit, that completely changes the picture. And so it's very difficult to get these things to be consistent. So that's why I'm highly skeptical of, of uh, photos before and after. But let's just say even that those photos are real. 
The other thing that you have to consider whenever seeing a before and after photo or demonstration, this just doesn't tell you what would have happened if they didn't have any treatment at all. You know, that is, if you had no treatment, if you didn't do, if you had a condition and you didn't do anything to it for two weeks or three weeks, what would it look like? For me, most things go away. Like I had a bug bite, it was there, and then I did nothing to it, didn't scratch it, and then a week later, it was gone. Now, that's what, whenever you're evaluating any kind of treatment, you have to remember there are three things that can happen. First, the condition just gets better. Second, the condition gets worse. Or third, the condition doesn't change. Now, these things, these three things are the only thing that can happen, and they're going to happen whether you use a product or whether you don't use a product. So when you see before and after pictures and someone says, oh, I I had this condition, I used this product, and I don't have the condition anymore, that's an interesting piece of data, and but it doesn't tell you what would have happened if they didn't use any treatment. And that's what you have to consider when you're talking about food supplements uh, or when you're talking about any kind of topical treatment or any beauty product treatment. Just because uh, you had a condition, you used a product, and you saw a benefit, that doesn't mean that that treatment actually was having an effect. You have to, that, and this is why anecdotal data is is not good. We want to ascribe an effect where there isn't always an effect, and it's very easy to fool ourselves. And that's why, as scientists, we look at not just single instances of whether something worked. We look at a group of people. Did it work for the group of people? And if something works for a group of people, uh, whether than just one individual, then we have more confidence that a treatment actually works. But as far as the supplements put out by uh, the vlogger, I mean, I I guess uh, beauty influencers need to make money somehow. <laughs> And, and launching your own product is definitely one of the ways. There is nothing about these supplements that can justify stopping gray hair or any of the other claims that they're making. I will point out that, at least in the United States, the beauty supplement industry or the health food supplement industry is practically unregulated. Uh, there was a thing passed called the Deshay Act, and pretty much as long as they put a disclaimer on there that claims have not been uh, validated by the FDA, they can pretty much say a lot uh, that they don't really have to establish is true. So I'll, I'll leave it there, but uh, stay skeptical there. I also want to add that in a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, an estimated 23,000 emergency department visits in the United States every year are attributed to adverse events related to dietary supplements. So these are commonly cardiovascular problems related to weight loss or energy products among young adults and people with swallowing problems. But with older adults, they are usually due to excessive nutrients. And so... My advice on supplements is that unless you're malnourished or your doctor recommends it, I suggest you avoid any dietary supplements, even the ones publicized by social media influencers. Uh, They're probably not going to work. They might be dangerous. uh, And there's just no good reason to take them.
This comes to us from Cynthia. Hi, Beauty Brains. I have a question about point after opening or the PIO icon on most makeup. I've become reliant on finding this and writing the expiration date on my makeup when I open it because I find it very useful to know when it expires. However, sometimes I can't find it on makeup, like on L'Oreal Voluminous Mascara. What do I do if I can't find a PAO on my makeup? Thank you so much. Excellent question, Cynthia. So the PAO is a symbol on a cosmetic product that looks like a little can that's opening. It has a base, it has a little lid, it's popping off. And you're going to find a number, could be 3, 6, 9, 12, 24, 36, with the letter M by it. And that tells you how many months the product is good. It's not an expiration date. It tells you how many months the product is good once the product is opened, exposed to air, etc. Well, this is a kind of labeling that you find in Europe. It's like required in Europe, but not so much in the U.S., right? Correct. And... Yeah, so you will find it on products that are for sale in Europe. And you can say, well, I'm buying a product in the United States and I'm finding it on there. The product is probably globally sold, meaning they're selling the same product in the United States or Canada as well as Europe. And so it's listed on there. A lot of brands also list it on there, but it do- it's not necessarily because they're required to for sale. A lot of people think it is a requirement in the United States and it's not. I think the benefit of having this PAO symbol on there is it does help you once a product is open, remind you that there is a a finite time that you're able to use it. For example, liquid hair color, once you open it, it's good for a very, very short amount of time. However, it could be more stable on a shelf. I think where it doesn't do a good service is that you actually have to remember when you opened the product. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I found like, a mascara tube in my drawer and I'm like, oh shoot, how old is this? Even yeah, how though can there's you know, right? <laughs> yeah. And the other thing too is you can have that. It doesn't mean the product's going to stay good after you open it. An expiration date still applies to the product. And guess what? In both the EU nor North America, unless it's an OTC product, are you required to write an expiration date? So you could have a product sitting in your cabinet for three years and it has a six-month period after opening symbol, and you open it, and it's bad. And you're like, oh, well, I've only had it open for a day. How can it be bad? It, it doesn't equate to the shelf life. So I think uh, while it can come in handy, especially for products that are sensitive to time period after being opened, uh, it's kind of hard to keep in perspective of, of when you open it, and it doesn't necessarily help you when you have an actual expiration date. I have to say, I've never been impressed with these PAO symbols. I I appreciate the effort there, but as you just said, say you buy a product and you just put it in your cabinet for two years and you don't open it, that doesn't mean when you open it, it's going to be good for six months or whatever it says in the PAO symbol. I just wonder, how do companies test a formula to get a PA, an accurate PAO number? I it just seems like a complete guess to it me. It actually comes out of a stability testing and a safety assessment for the mm-hmm. product. And 
it's it's not just arbitrarily like you know what throw three months on there i actually did work for a brand one time that they literally they weren't selling the product in europe so it's fine they literally made up their own period after opening dates and i was like yeah i I don't think that's how it works so it's just anyway so that's what it is um the period after opening, it's not an expiration date. And if you're not finding it on your makeup, it is because the product is not for sale in the UK or Europe. And it's probably a North American product or a product from another region. In a previous episode, I forget which number it was, we did talk about uh, the lot numbers that you can find sometimes on products, and then you can use that lot number to contact the company and look up the date when something was made. Uh, but it's much more complicated. The PAO attempts to make things more simple for consumers. I think it simplifies things a bit too much because they don't know you don't know how long it's been sitting on the shelf and how long it's been in your own shelf. So that whole PAO thing might not be accurate if, you, if you're past the expiration date of the product anyway. Yeah, which, by the way, not every brand uh, puts on there. Most brands don't. So, On the plus side, uh, makeup, actually, especially the pressed powders and things, they can last for a long time, right? <laughs> it's practically good forever. I mean, right. I would say like probably many people would not agree with that statement, but I have a blush. I've been working on using it for eight years. And like, <laughs> yeah, is it getting a little like, compressed and kind of like it has like that weird like plasticky look on top yeah but it still works Uh, so i can see that the the beauty industry really is not wanting consumers like you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm like the biggest hypocrite i also sometimes don't use a thermal protectant on hair if i flat iron it yeah and that's like the (laughs) one thing i preach i'm like but i didn't have one i'm just kidding not kidding. It's a terrible habit. <laughs> I, I just, uh, every so often I use this hair styling gel from Axe, or it's not just styling putty or whatever from Axe, and I never use hair. I, I mean, I almost never do. I've had this same tub I've been using since 2009. Oh, my <laughs> it still gosh. Works. Hey, it must be preserved still... well. Well, it, it's anhydrous, so. Oh. But the fragrance still smells all right, and, you know, but <laughs> I'm a terrible beauty consumer. I admit it. I people. <laughs> Our next question comes to us from Leticia on Instagram. So Leticia says, I was finally tested for allergies and it turns out I'm allergic to linalool. I was wondering if linalool can be hidden under fragrance in a formula or if it is not on the list of ingredients, it is for sure not in the product. Well, that is a great question. Yeah. So yeah, interesting, yeah. linalool is a fragrance allergen. So I wouldn't, as a cosmetic chemist, you know, Perry and I wouldn't take linalool and just squirt it into our formulas. It's not really an ingredient that we would use. It's actually a component in fragrances. Uh, It can be added synthetically. It occurs naturally in many, many plant extracts. So it's not only, it's not only a fragrance component, but it can be found in botanical extracts. So you know, a lot of people focus on fragrance allergens being in fragrance. And I think really the future is, and we've talked about it on the show because we have a lot of people saying, Hey, I have an allergy to allergens uh, that are found in fragrances. And I'm trying to find fragrance free, botanical free. Um, Several months ago, we talked about Dr. Courtney Rubin and the letter to the editor that she wrote in JAMA Dermatology saying that 
botanical extracts are causing all these irritations on people's skin because they're complex and they have all these allergens in them. So I feel like people get so focused on fragrances and it, and it's like, no, it, they're not just in fragrances. They're also in plant extracts. So right. yeah. that being said, if you have an allergy to a fragrance allergen, I would consider not only using a fragrance-free product, but a botanical-free product as well, just to ensure you have no exposure. That's the first thing I would do. But let's say, you know, it's like Val, you know, I don't, I want to keep using botanicals. I'm totally fine with that. Um, and I'm even fine to use fragrance. I just want to know if linalool is an allergen in there. It gets a little complicated because of how we are required yeah. to label or disclose allergens in fragrances. So in the U.S., brands are not actually required, U.S. and Canada, brands are actually not required to list allergens on an ingredient label for fragrances. They're not. The reason you see it yeah. is because it's commonplace in other geographies and most brands want to sell one product around the world. So they just do it or they just say it's not a big deal to do it. So we're going to do it. The EU at the EU actually requires it. Um, and then what happens is if you're a big company, you're just going to adopt the, the most stringent regulations that you can because you want to you sell it everywhere. So often you'll you'll see people talk about this uh, fragrance loophole where people don't have to list all their ingredients it is kind of a loophole i can see it uh but if you're buying products from big companies they are going to list all of the fragrance allergens and right now the eu has 26 allergens that are common enough uh that they require you to list them and when I say common enough, uh, I think their threshold is about 4% of the population shows some sort of allergic response to these ingredients. Which is pretty high. 4% uh, is pretty high. Which is pretty high. Yeah. I did, I did watch a uh, presentation uh, last year, a couple of years ago maybe, um, and they were looking to expand that to over 300 ingredients. It's, whew, which it's too much. would just be, a, <laughs> it would be quite amazing. <laughs> If you could see these ingredient lists, uh, I mean, one of the one of the benefits to consumers of this fragrance loophole, uh, everybody talks about the negatives about it, but one of the benefits is that you don't have an ingredient list that is the entire backside of your product. Because if you listed all the ingredients in a fragrance, uh, fragrances can have 50, 100, or 150 ingredients in them. Mm-hmm. How's that going to help anybody to see that many ingredients? Yeah. Well, I think one of the key words you mentioned, um, Perry, and I actually want to elaborate a little further, is just because a fragrance contains an allergen, even in Europe, doesn't mean the brand is required to list it on their product. And that's because Mm -hmm. there's a threshold. So the EU has said, okay, just because the allergen is present, yes, the allergen is a hazard, but that doesn't mean there's any risk if it's below a certain level in a product. Yeah. So they have defined a threshold for products that are rinsed off the body, and they've defined a threshold for products that are left on the body. If you are making a leave-on product like a lotion and a fragrance allergen appears above 0.001% in the formula, you're required to list the allergen. If it falls under 0.001%, you're not required to list it. So in the case of a fragrance containing linalool, linalool could still technically be present. It's just under the threshold for allergenicity. A rinse-off product has a 0.01% threshold. And mm-hmm. so, again, if it's under 0.01%, you don't list it. If it's above, you do. So that doesn't mean they've listed all the allergens. There's kind of a limit to it. 
So if you're really concerned about whether or not linalool is present or not, you can't just go by the label even for a European compliant product because there's that threshold, right? And then it would be technically in the product, but it's below the level. Yeah. Maybe it's detectable, maybe it's not. It, it depends on what the level is. Theoretically, those those lower limits are the limit at which people are not going to have a reaction, even if you are allergic to it. But that's only theoretically. You might. Correct. So therefore, for, for me, if you know that you have an, an allergic propensity towards linalool, we'll call it, I, w- I would really just avoid fragrances. Additionally, botanicals also have allergens in them. I, I mentioned that a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would also avoid products with botanical extracts because most brands, uh, I would say probably 99% of companies don't test for or they don't ask their ingredient suppliers for or they don't even look for the presence of allergens in botanicals. This is all a relatively new thing. Even for us, our toxicologist only this year has started telling us, hey, I need you guys need to run allergen testing for all of the botanical extracts you use uh, because they're looking for certain things. And yeah, sometimes they're present. So uh, yeah. there's currently no legal requirement for allergens and botanical extracts, but I, I predict probably there will be. So if you're really allergic, avoid fragrance and avoid botanical extracts. Yeah. Linalool specifically is in cinnamon, it's in mint, it's in coriander, um, all of those natural extracts. If those are on there, it's probably got linalool in it. Yep. How about we move on to the next question? Hi, my name is Meredith, and I had a question for the Beauty Brains podcast. I love the podcast, by the way. I know you talked about possibly discussing multi-level marketing, I am a military spouse and I'm inundated by multi-level marketing companies claiming to sell safer products. Uh, Brands like Beauty Counter talk about all the terrible things that are in other products and how their stuff is somehow better. This is especially annoying because a couple years back when my daughter, who was doing really well, uh, had cancer, I had another military spouse try to sell me these products claiming that they would make my family safer. So my question is, how do you recommend I respond? Um, what Do you have any quick evidence-based responses that um, could gently explain why I don't want to buy these products and why I think the marketing in particular is a problem? So thank you. Again, love the podcast. Oh, Meredith, MLM is one of my favorite subjects. Uh, someday maybe we'll do a whole show on MLMs, but uh, I hesitate to because I don't have a lot of great stuff to say about them. Um, But let's talk about this question. Are the uh, MLM brands that claim their products safer, are they really safer? The the, the quick answer here is no. These products are not safer um, in the United States and around the world, really. Uh, Cosmetic companies are required to follow regulations, and the number one rule is it's illegal to sell unsafe products. So the stuff that you can get at Target or the stuff you can buy through Amazon, well, maybe Amazon, uh, certainly anything that you're getting from big companies has been proven safe and they're they're as safe as anything that you'd get from an MLM product. So these these products that you might get from a company like Beauty Counter, as you mentioned, they're not safer than the stuff that you can get from Procter & Gamble or Unilever or L'Oreal. 
again, we have access to all of the same ingredients. We're all chemists. Uh, you know, we're, we're formulating the way formulators formulate the physical product piece from a safety perspective. Isn't any different. The laws are still the same. They're not following some other law that, you know, other brands are not following. Uh, the only difference I would say is maybe these MLMs, you know, they try to come up with their own unique uh, brand positioning and maybe they'll have these restricted lists. You know, some of them don't. Uh, but from a physical product perspective, we're all using the same stuff. Right. And I look at the way that the products get made. A big company and even a medium-sized company that's not MLM, they're going to have in-house chemists who are formulating their products. Well, some of the big MLMs, and it's arguable whether they are or not, but places like Mary Kay and Avon, they actually hire chemists. I, I know a lot of the chemists who work there uh, to make their formulas, and they make good products, right? They can make mm -hmm. products just as good as the big guys because they really are big guys. But it doesn't take a lot to start up an MLM, and so a small startup is not going to have chemists. They're not going to have their own in-house formulas even. They typically will hire a contract manufacturer, and contract manufacturers work on you know, all kinds of different products, but it's not going to be a specialized product. They're going to get what the contract manufacturer gives them, and maybe they'll have some direction of like what ingredients that they want to feature that they put in there. But there's nothing special about the products that are made for these smaller MLMs that should warrant you spending a lot more money on them and believing that they're going to work better or that they're safer. Yeah, for sure. Now, I look at – I'm not a big fan of the MLM uh, model specifically because it, it – there really is the the whiff of like a pyramid scheme that goes on in a lot of these things. And if you look, according to research done by the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, 99% of people who sell for MLMs are going to be losing money. So that's really only 1% of people who are out there selling products are actually turning a profit. Now, my mom actually bought um, – I, I remember there, a lady would come to our house – you know, maybe once a month or so. And they would sit and chat and my mom would buy some products from her. But she never convinced my mom to sell the products. And so she she must have been doing okay. Um, but as long as you, I mean, the products are going to be fine. But I would not recommend that unless you have a particular penchant for sales, uh, that you take on one of these MLM jobs. I mean, if you want to start your own beauty product line, it, it would be you have a much better chance of turning a profit if you are going to just start the line yourself. You can contact a contract manufacturer, get a run of it, start your own beauty brand, and uh, distribute it too. So I'm not a big fan of this MLM uh, business model per se. Yeah, it certainly takes a special individual with a lot of uh, independent initiative and kind of like working for yourself really. And not a lot of people have that the ability to do that successfully, which I think is partially why um, the success rate is so low. And additionally, in order to really profit yeah. and make a ton of money, you have to get a big team under you. So, um, For not sure. to say you can't, you can't do it. I think a lot of people are doing it really well. And I know a lot of people have made their careers in retirement working for MLMs, but it's, it's not a vast majority of the population. And 
but the products are fine. I actually know a couple of chemists. Right. Uh, I employ a chemist who worked for an MLM and uh, they really did make great products and they had very strict rules and all that kind of stuff. But um, not all of them are the same. Um, and I do know a couple MLMs who use contract manufacturers that I would I would never touch with a 10 foot pole. So <laughs> right. it's, so it's really it's, tough to pick through that as a consumer for sure. It's tough to know. So what evidence can we provide for a reason not to buy? It's just that these products are more expensive often. Um, the business model, if you, you don't want to get roped into that business model unless you're a special type of salesperson, and you can get perfectly uh, good working products uh, out at the stores. So there's really no advantage to these MLM-derived products. Yeah, but if you happen to like the products that your um, representative is selling, go ahead and buy them perfectly safe. Yeah. Uh, and just be very clear you're not interested in selling if you don't want to become part of their team that's shaped like a pyramid. <laughs> that's a little pyramidish. Maybe it's more, yeah. of, a, maybe it's more yeah. of a cone, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, and, but all joking aside, if, if you do like the products, there are a couple, for example, Arbonne products I really enjoy, um, and I, I'm more than happy to buy them. Uh, from this lady that sells them and support her. I hate their her. marketing, though. They, their marketing is terrible. But you know, I, they have they have great products, though. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I'm happy to support yeah. the lady. Yeah. But oh, I yeah, do sure, know that sure. they're a little expensive, and um, you know, I, I can get other products that I like too. So, yeah, figure out what works for you guys. But um, anyway, I think that brings us to the end of this show. Thanks for Already? listening. Already? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for listening. If you get a chance, could you go over to the iTunes and leave us a review? That will help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. We love to answer audio questions, so don't forget to send us that audio question by email if you can. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we have a Facebook page. And The Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. That helps uh, keep the show ad-free. And now that we've bashed all the MLM companies, they don't want to advertise with us either. <laughs> but some of them are very good. We just, oh, we just you know, we personally love. don't recommend it. Yeah, Right, exactly. <laughs> so if you like what we're doing and you want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. And don't forget, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Now cue the cats. Oh, the real cats. Kittens. <laughs>